Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Okay, so we have a ton to do today, so I'm just going to jump in. You guys can head to Psalm 27, verse 4. That's where we're going to start today. And while you're getting there, I'll talk for a second. Um, I've always... I've always been kind of a fan of history, and the civil rights movement has always been very interesting to me. And if you know much about the civil rights movement, you will know of a letter written by Martin Luther King Jr. called The Letter from Birmingham Jail. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Had, he had come into Birmingham and had staged a series of sit-ins and marches and sanctions against the economy of Birmingham for the oppression of African Americans. Well, he ended up being put in prison. And while, while he was in prison, the local white clergyman uh, accused King of lacking patience and that he should trust them to kind of push the ball of civil rights forward. So he wrote them this letter. And at the beginning of the letter, he said he usually does not respond to critics because if he responded to critics, he'd just be responding to critics all the time. But he said, in this case, because they were brothers in Christ, he was going to respond to them. So this is part of that letter. He says, Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, drown your sisters and brothers at a whim, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park, that has been, just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs of reading white and colored when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a, de- a, de- a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will, find it, you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate, legitimate and unavoidable impatience. So he wrote this in 1963. Okay, the Supreme Court of the United States of America said in 1954, no more segregation, this stops. He wrote this in 1963, nearly a decade later, and nothing had changed. Now here's what's amazing. The civil rights movement under King, it never gets violent. Things get goofy after King, but under Martin Luther King Jr., it never goes violent. And that's, that is incredible to me because here's what I know about me, right? Earlier this week, my family went, we picked up some Taco Bell, right? And then we went to the park and we ate our tacos and nachos and you got to get the cinnamon twist. And then Kate and I sat at a picnic table and talked while our, gir- while our girls ran across the road, played on the seesaw together. And I'm sure all of you who are parents have had this feeling, but it was just so fun to watch my girls laugh and sing and play and yell. It was just wonderful. My children are a delight to me. So I just want to speak very frankly and honestly. You turn a dog loose on my children, which is what happened to black folks in Birmingham, I will try to murder you. 
right? You understand what I'm saying? I would punch and choke you and would physically try to destroy you. You might be a big old boy. I know the soft spots, right? I'll punch you in the throat. We're going to go to the ground. I'm going to take the boots to you. I know I'd go to jail. I know I'd make the news. I know I'm going to lose my job, right? The elders are not going to be like, well, that, he just murdered a guy. Let's let him preach. It's not going to happen. I know all it would cost me. I'd still try to murder you. So how did African-Americans in the 60s do it? How did they stay nonviolent? I recently read an article by Dr. Rigsby that said, uh, a Dr. Rigsby, that said that, that what sustained the African-Americans in the 60s during the civil rights movement was how they approached God and how they worshipped with one another. And I don't know if you've been a part of a black church service. The way they do it is call and response. So that means in, in the service, everybody comes to play, right? It's not people on the stage and people in the crowd. It's we're all here to get after the Lord. It's going to be long. It's going to be a long service. It's going to be good, right? There's, you're going to sing for two hours. They're going to preach for an hour and 45 minutes. You better bring a sandwich or some crackers or something or else you're going to pass out. And it's just going to be awesome. Us Anglos are not like that, right? We're like, this sermon has gone on for like eight minutes now. He should probably start wrapping up soon. Uh, so, this, so in this call and response culture, they pressed hard into the presence of God. And here's what's amazing. If you think about it, in that four-hour gathering, nothing got solved. So they're walking into that service past signs that say colored and whites only, past restaurants they're not allowed to go into, into a worship center. And in that four hours, nothing changed. They walked right out, and those signs were still there, right back to the broken system. Nothing changed. But in those four hours, they met with the living God. And that was enough to sustain them. Now, I was reading the article about... Uh, I was reading the article about the presence of God and some scriptures just started to jump out at me when I was reading this article. And I want you to watch what King David prays to God. So Psalm 27, verse 4, you should be there. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So we're going to read more of this, but I just I want to stop, right? You and I are not kings, right? You and I might be, we might have busy lives, but we aren't managing a kingdom. If it is, it's a tiny little kingdom. We aren't sovereign of our own state. We can't declare people get imprisoned. We can't declare the tax rate, right? King David can. He's running a kingdom. And he has the Philistines that are a, a nation at the border of Israel that can't seem to learn to quit invading. He beats them, they run off, they come back. He beats them, they run off, they come back just over and over. I mean, just destroying the Philistines over and over and over again. They just regroup and come back for more. He has the Philistines. He has massive family issues. King David's family was a mess. His son rapes his daughter, leads a rebellion against him that forces him to flee his throne for a good period of time. Big family drama. So David has massive, complex issues, both as a, a statesman, as a husband, as a father. Do you hear his prayer? He has all these problems on his radar, but he's not asking for solutions to any of those problems. He's saying, one thing I ask the Lord, and only in this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
So King David and the African Americans in, in Birmingham in the 60s had very little in common. But both of them relied on God's presence to sustain them. God is, God's present in two different ways. God is present in his omnipresence. I'm sure that you've heard that word. What that means is God is everywhere, always in his fullness. So he's everywhere right now. God is here like he's on Pluto, right? Just as like the farthest reaches of the universe. There's not a little piece of him here and a little piece of him there. He's always everywhere. That's called omnipresence. There's a second kind of presence that the Bible often speaks of. And that's what David's talking about here. And that would be what theologians would call special presence or manifest presence. So that's when God reveals his presence in a way that his glory is made visible. It's felt in our hearts. And what's truly important is experienced. And what's not important no longer seems important. So God shows up. He moves hearts, right? There might be tears, feelings of joy and peace. We feel small. He seems big. That's manifest presence. It talks about the manifest presence of God in Isaiah 64. It says, Oh, that thou would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. What it's saying is, when the manifest presence of God comes, God is so real that when you experience the presence of God, it's more real than the mountains. So solid that the mountains look like liquid. It's this great word picture. When you've experienced the presence of God, something happens to you. Things that look like mountains, like they look like jello. Things that stood in your way and there was no way you could get around them suddenly become to look small. When you're in his manifest presence, everything else becomes dim and small in the light of his beauty. And when David says, what I'm after is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, he's not talking about omnipresence. He's talking about the manifest presence of the Lord. And when he says, I want to gaze upon your beauty, he's talking about manifest presence, not omnipresence. Because when we experience manifest presence, look at what David says happens. This is verse 5. It says, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. Okay, so I love that the Bible never pretends that the day of trouble isn't coming. Like he doesn't say, you don't need a shelter because he'll stop the storm. No, a storm's coming. He's going to protect you in it. You shouldn't be surprised when the storm comes. What God has promised us is not that he would save us from the day of trouble, but that he would protect us in it. Then look at this next line. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. So the sacred tent he is referring to is the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting is where God would meet with Moses. And God's manifest presence would fall on the tent of meeting. Moses would go in there. Smoke would cover this tent just as a way of saying, hey, everybody, don't come in here. You'll get killed. Uh, don't come into the tent right now. I'm talking to my boy Moses, so stay away. And his manifest presence would fall. And the tent of meeting is this idea of a heavy manifest presence of God. The promise is that in the day of trouble, we will not only be protected, but God will draw us into his tent. And we will experience his presence in a heavy way. As a person on planet Earth, one of the things that you see is a lot of loss and grief, right? Because we live in a fallen world. And one of, one of the things that I've seen as my time, in my time as a pastor is, in that hospital room, in that funeral home, God shows up and he grants peace that passes understanding. 
It's not that everything is okay. It's just that in that moment, God is so near that all the rest of it melts away and you get what you need. You have him. That is God hiding us in the shelter of his sacred tent. Then it says next, if you look at the next line, not only will he pull us into his tent, but he sets me high upon a rock. Yeah. David loves to talk about his feet being set upon a rock. What happens in, in manifest presence, God makes himself so known in such a real way. He brings peace, he shelters, then he gets your feet out of the muck and the mire, and he gets you up on a rock. I mean, you, we can be honest. There are times in life when you feel, you feel like you're trying to walk through knee-deep mud, right? Especially if you're in like the day of trouble. Things aren't going well, and you feel like you're in a pit of mud, and it just says that when you experience the manifest presence, he sets you high upon a rock. This is, he doesn't leave you wallowing in the muck and the mire. He gets you to a place where you can see again and move again and have hope again. Then he says, then my head will be exalted, or some, some say uh, my head will be lifted up above the enemies who surround me. So if you're defeated, the posture of defeat is head down. But what he's saying is, get your heads up, get your eyes up. Lift up your heads, get your heads up. Why? Because he, has, he and his presence have vanquished, have conquered your enemies. Now I need you to hear this. You only have two enemies. There are only two. I know some of you are like, well, you don't know my life. You don't know Stacy, right? I'm sorry if some poor woman in here is named Stacy, but Stacy isn't your enemy. You have two enemies. You ready? Here they are. Demonic forces and you. That's it. Those are your only enemies you have. Your enemies are either demonic in nature or flesh-oriented. They are your iniquities, your bents, your sinfulness, Here's something we need to remember. No one has lied to you, betrayed you, and deceived you more than you have. No one. You're your greatest enemy. Now here's why we get our heads up. Because when the manifest presence of God shows up, both of those lose their their power. If you'll remember, King Saul was tormented by demons and, and David would play his heart. I know that doesn't sound manly, but keep in mind, David killed Goliath and bears and lions, right? So play that harp, baby. I don't care. He's playing his harp, and when he played his harp, the manifest presence of God would come down, and the demons would flee from Saul, and Saul would feel comfort. When the manifest presence of God falls, the demonic realm and the powers of dark spiritual forces lose the loudness of their voice. When the manifest presence of God shows up, you feel small. God feels big. Right? That's a great... There's a great deal of joy in that smallness. When God's spirit and God's presence really reveal themselves, you don't think you're awesome, right? But you know who is. That's why he's going, your enemies will be triumphed, will be conquered. Then look at the net result. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So the response to the manifest presence of God is, fervent, passionate worship of his name and his renown. And we'll talk about that more momentarily, but now I, just, I don't want this to be ethereal, right? I don't want you to be like, okay, manifest presence, I get it. What, I'm, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I see. I want to make it more prag- a bit pragmatic. I want us to talk about how we seek it and what it is, because what David just said is, 
I don't, I don't need the kingdom to be at peace. I, need things at ho- I don't need things at home to be made right. What I need is his presence. If I can get into the, his manifest presence, I'll be empowered to keep walking with joy despite my circumstances. This is the thing I after. I'm after. This is what I seek. And what we find is David, in David's life is he, he, when he can't get into the manifest presence of God, he gets really frustrated. Right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, God. I thirst for you. When can I meet God? When can I meet with God? That's him just wanting to get into the presence of God and not being able to get there. In fact, the Bible tells us to seek his presence. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. So you and I are to seek after the manifest presence of God. Now here's the thing. You and I cannot control the manifest presence of God. You cannot make God show up in special ways. It's not a combination lock. So we cannot control the manifest presence of God, but... What we learn from the scripture is that there are things that attract the presence of God and there are things that repel the presence of God. What I want to do now with my sermon, okay, that was all intro, right? Don't panic. You're going to be okay. What I want to do now is I want to go very quickly into what the things are that attract the manifest presence of God and the things that, what are the things that repel the manifest presence of God. So what attracts the manifest presence of God? Two things. Number one, personal holiness. Let me give you a couple of texts. Psalm 41 verse 12 says, Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Psalm 51 verses 10 through 12 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So this is talking about the manifest presence of God. Because how can God cast you away from his presence if he's everywhere? Create in me a pure heart. Because of my integrity, you have set me in your presence. Jesus is what we're after. What we most desire. What we most love. How that translates into obedience is, I want to be obedient to all God has asked me to be obedient to so that I might experience the fullness of his presence and his power. Pornography, lust, adultery, cheating, stealing, these things are not better than the manifest presence of God. They are a bad trade. I want the manifest presence of God, so I want to line myself up, line myself up with how God created me to operate for the fullness of my joy. This means we are people who confess and repent often. Let me show you what this at play. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So that's great news. Verse 20, The times of refreshing may come. Now I don't meet too many people who are like, yeah, I don't need refreshed. Right? I don't. You know what I don't want right now? Refreshment. He says, Repent. And if you'll repent, if you'll turn, your sins will be wiped out and times of refreshing may come. Watch this. The times of refreshing may come from what? Presence of the Lord. How are we refreshed? By the presence of God. 
which leads me to number two. God's manifest presence is also attracted to fervent, passionate worship in song. Some of you don't like this, but God loves when we sing to him. He loves it. He says he inhabits the praises of his people. Can you believe that? He inhabits it. As we sing to him, as we make much of him, as we fervently sing and shout and clap and love God and sing what is true about God, he inhabits that praise. In fact, he commands us to do it. So Psalm 95 verse 1 and 2 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. That was what Katie was talking about this morning. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Psalms 100 verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, instruction, teaching, those are great. But there will be a day when instruction ceases. You understand what I'm saying? When we're in glory, God is not going to ask me to explain the scriptures. Right? We're not going to be there and he's going to go like, Hey, Chris, could you explain to them 2 Timothy? Not going to be, not going to happen. There's not going to be any instruction, but there will be passionate, zealous worship through song. God loves it. Before C.S. Lewis's conversion, he said that he was reading the Psalms and God sounded like a little old lady asking for compliments. That's what he thought. He said after his conversion, he understood that his soul was never more alive than when he was ascribing to God his worth, when he was worshiping. I know some of you might be like, well, it's just... I just don't like the repetition, right? And heaven's going to be rough for you, okay? Because right now and since the beginning of time, there have been living creatures around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty on replay, never switching to a new song. Now here's why repetition is so profound. Because it digs down into your gut. It gets past your shoulders. It's not just brain worship. I want my heart to be involved in the truth. I want my gut involved in that truth. I want to be moved by that truth. If you have to preach the gospel over and over and over again to get it, then why don't we believe that we might need to sing some things over and over and over again to get them? Well, Chris, you're just trying to invoke emotions. Okay, here's the thing. I am absolutely trying to invoke emotions. God gave you emotions. That wasn't the devil. God wove that into you, and God wants those emotions to be moved by what is true. Now, if your emotions are being invoked by what is not true, I have a problem with that. To try and stir up your hearts in gladness toward Jesus Christ by maybe repetition, nothing wrong with that. Now here's the second thing we have to talk about when we talk about singing fervently to the Lord. Fervency is different for all of us. Can we agree? It looks different for everybody. So it isn't that mature people raise their hands and shout and clap and immature people don't. That isn't the rule. No, we all, in our way, passionately and fervently sing and make music to the Lord because he has commanded us to. And he indwells that. We have come here to worship the living God, to interact with the living God, to experience the living God. You do that with singing and worshiping. It attracts the manifest presence of God. 
I mean, I'm not encouraging this, but David got so caught up in the Lord that he took off his clothes, right? He was just wearing his ephod. He danced around all the people of Israel. His wife rebuked him, said he looked stupid. He rebuked her back, said, woman, which I don't understand how those guys got away with that back then, but woman, if I said that, that'd be a bad scene. But David said, woman, I'll become more undignified than this. You think me and this ephod dancing around is bad. I'll get worse than this. I'll get real weird. If I get the presence of God, I'm all in. I think so many of us just don't want to look foolish. I can tell you, God is never going to go, all right, kind of making a big deal about me. Everybody just calm down a little bit. That's a little loud. We're doing some things over here. We're trying to concentrate. No, it's an incense into the throne of heaven. He inhabits the praises of his people. He commands us to enter with singing and rejoicing. This attracts the manifest presence of God. Now again, I have to keep going back to this. Does that mean every time we worship and sing together, God is going to show up? No. But it puts us where we are supposed to be. Now what repels the manifest presence of God? Two things. We're going to move quickly through these. Number one, pride. Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So when God uses that word haughty, he's not talking about someone who is attractive. Okay? Hey man, it's not my fault, I'm gorgeous. He's saying the haughty, the proud, the boastful, he knows from afar. Now that's not omnipresence, that's manifest presence. The proud, the boastful, I know from afar. Here's what's sad. The haughty, the, the prideful don't care. They don't think they need the presence of God. They don't think their sin is that big of a deal. They live under the illusion of control. Isn't it interesting? When everything is going well in our world, we're proud of ourselves, right? Things at home are good. The checkbook looks decent. The kids are kind of behaving. Uh, we're getting along with our spouse. We're not fighting with anybody at work. We're kind of proud of us. Kind of getting into the swing of things. Things are good, in a good rhythm right now. Then when things fall apart, we're like, God, what in the world are you doing? It's haughtiness. It's pride. It repels the manifest presence of God. Then one more. Complacency or indifference. So when we're indifferent or complacent about the things of God, it repels the manifest presence of God. I mean, this isn't hard to wrap our heads around. right? How, indi how do indifference and complacency work out in other relationships? Men, I mean, be indifferent and complacent about your wife. You will find a man somewhere else start to be not indifferent toward your wife. Be complacent about your children and you'll wake up and your days of influence will be gone. We can understand even on a human level that indifference and complacency never ends well. That's why the proverb says a fool is destroyed in his complacency. If we were to come expectant, if we were to come in belief, if we were to fervently pursue like these people in the Bible do, where David goes, I'm seeking, I'm thirsty, I need the presence of God. If we're like Moses who cries out, show me your glory. For like the Apostle Paul who says, we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And on and on and on I could go. For these, for these people who say, what I need is God and I'll surrender everything and sacrifice everything and consider everything else rubbish, 
next to the surpassing greatness of knowing him, boy, I'll spend my life in that pursuit. So as a church, I think when we come and we gather on the weekends, we need to be prepared and anticipating God's presence. Can I tell you what God does when we gather? Here's just a couple things I personally know. God saves people. You know how crazy that is? People come in our doors, they're not believers in the gospel, haven't experienced the life change Christ brings, and God meets them and rescues them here. God heals people here. Like literally bends the laws of science and miraculously heals people here. God reconciles marriages here. He exposes sin here. He stirs up affection. He changes lives. He does it when we come together. And I'll be honest, I think we need a greater anticipation about what he does here. David mourned when he could when he got to a place where he could no longer enter the temple. Why isn't there this ongoing anticipation for what God will do among us as we gather? Reconciled marriages. People who are near divorce who God brought back together. Wayward people called home. God is at work among us. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray you would do now what only you can do. I pray that, that where our hearts are hard, that you would give us hearts of flesh, that you would, as the, as the psalmist prayed, restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, that you would free us up from our own stupid dignity that we might enjoy you fully. I pray that we might believe more that you are who you say you are, that you would give us the grace to embrace and believe all you have promised us in Christ. We thank you for the gospel, for forgiveness, and for the manifest presence. And ask that you would, would fall in that way among us. It's through your name I pray. Amen.